So I'll continue reading from the book Being Being Dhamma. Jancha. Uh, this is titled Morality Brings Happiness, a talk given on Songkra, the traditional New Year. And that was always a big day at Wapapong for the lay community in particular. Um, of course, the monastics were all around as well. And uh, say uh, they would actually give Ajahn Chah a uh, kind of a bath, a shower. Uh, everybody would be in on it. Uh, you'd put a big pipe up and sort of cord them off and and then everybody would be pouring water into the pipe, and, and uh, it's quite a. And then every and then every once he's sort of uh, washed, and in other areas of Thailand they would do like washing, especially in the north of Thailand, do washing of Buddha images, and then there'd be a ceremonial hand washing as well. And, uh, uh, but then once such and Chai would be washed, then there'd be. Everybody's throwing water at everybody else. It's hot season, so then everybody's soaking wet, and Hajin Cha is sort of dried down in his robes, and then he gives the precepts, and uh, there'd be a asking for forgiveness, giving precepts, and they'd give a dhamma talk. So he begins this with the um, with the verse "Silena sugatinyanti silena boga sampada silena nibutinyanti." which is translated here as morality is the vehicle for happiness, morality is wealth and treasure, morality is the vehicle for dispassion. Thus may morality be purified. We who have come here to seek refuge in the Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha today find ourselves in this moment in time which is passing by right before our eyes as we sit here. It is as the Buddha taught. Days and nights are relentlessly passing. How well are we spending our time? This is the speech of the Buddha. His very serious admonition to us to watch over ourselves. Still, some Buddhists let the days and nights pass without recollecting what they are doing that day, what they have done in the day past, or what they will do on the morrow. It is a mistake to let the time pass without employing mindfulness to pay attention to whether we are doing good or causing harm, knowing whether our intentions and behavior are good or bad. Yet it is indeed rare to find individuals who think about this and have this kind of sensitivity. Today we have completed another year according to the old calendar. Actually, we don't have to take so much interest in what we have completed, and we don't need to think in terms of Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, and so on. We can consider that we are starting from today, whatever the day is. Twelve months make a year, no matter when we start. It disagrees with worldly convention, that is all. So we have come to this season of the year when we meet according to tradition. It is the end of another year in which we have been trying to practice the Dhamma. We will have happiness and harmonious living because of honesty and morality. Living in a group or in the larger society, we will experience happiness and well-being because of morality and dhamma, the practice of virtue. When I was a child, on this day, the village elders would lead us together to other districts for what was called 
communing over water. And we would drink from the same water, make vows over the same water, proclaiming our intention to be honest and straightforward toward each other. For example, in this district, in this township, in this province, we would say, although we live in different villages and have different concerns, let us have a common outlook for the purpose of bringing happiness to everyone. Let us all live firmly established in virtue and spirituality. We would vow in this way to establish truthfulness in order to have integrity in our dealings with our superiors toward the village, the nation, the religion, and royalty. It was in order to instill respect and caution, to be aware, to be modest and humble toward each other. Then our villages and our nation would be able to live in peace and happiness because of Siladamma, noble behavior by way of body, speech, and mind. In this way, there could be harmony. If we are without honesty and integrity, well, just look at the way things are all around us these days. If you take a look, you'll probably be able to see. Within one village, people quarrel with each other. Children of the same parents dispute with each other. Citizens of the same country are fighting with each other. It's because of delusion. I'm not pointing a finger at anyone. It's only because of our delusion that this happens. Those who are, in actuality, brothers and sisters, are quarreling and fighting and killing each other, all to no purpose. Why is this? Because of wrong understanding. People who don't understand correctly do not think about the meaning of virtue and spirituality. So our Supreme Teacher established what is called the Buddhist religion. It can be called Buddhist science, which is a body of knowledge superior to all other disciplines. Those subjects we study in the world, even when studied to the doctoral level, are disciplines with no end to learning. They are disciplines that have limits, which exist in the realm of desire and attachment, and which lead to suffering. They do not help us let go of suffering. This kind of knowledge is called science, but it is not the same as Buddhist science. In Buddhist study, if we have learned properly, we learn to let go, put down, stop. If there is harm in something, we learn to see the harm. Instead of holding tightly to things, we learn how to loosen our grip and let go. We learn about giving up. This is Buddhist science. The teachings of the Buddha are a body of knowledge that is true and correct in all ways. They had to be taught because these things do not come naturally for us. This knowledge does not change into some other set of concepts, but its validity remains the same. For example, the Buddha taught that doing good brings good results, and doing evil brings evil results. This is a fixed law. It is certain. It is knowledge that comes from pure wisdom that is certain and reliable. Thus, it can be called truth. Still, there are those who say that doing good is not certain to bring good results. They may have practiced virtue, but not seen any good come from it. I practice virtue, so why can't I see any benefit? We can see plenty of people doing bad things and getting good results, and plenty of people doing good yet still experiencing suffering. This is true, but only in the way of wrong understanding, insofar as it is wrong view. It does not actually accord 
with the truth. If we really see according to the truth, we realize that the Buddha's teaching is not something that changes. Whatever happens, the truth that the Buddha awakened to is something fixed and certain. The truth is always the truth. When it appears as untruth, that is because of the wrong understanding of human beings. For example, Mr. A might be arrested and accused of some crime. He is perfectly innocent of the charges, but he doesn't have any witnesses on his side. The police may bring forth a parade of witnesses to testify against him, while his only witness is his own awareness and integrity. In this case, he can't win. Because he can't prove the other witness is wrong, he ends up going to jail. Still, he is in the right, and it will only be his body that is incarcerated. His mind will not be locked up. If this happened to most of us, we would probably feel wronged and get pretty depressed. But according to the Buddha, there is never any valid cause for feeling wronged. If such things happen to us, if we have not done anything wrong, yet must pay a price and experience suffering, we have to place the blame on karma, our actions. Though we haven't done anything wrong today, we may have done so yesterday. If we didn't do it yesterday, we may have done it sometime in the past. We can conclude that we did something previously and thus have this experience in the present because of the principle that nothing happens without a cause. If there is no cause, phenomena do not arise. All phenomena appear due to causes. If we can always contemplate this principle and consider things in this way, our lives will be joyous. To find people who really trust the Buddha's teachings like this is very rare. For example, I established this monastery together with the lay supporters and monastic disciples more than 20 years ago. You may have heard the history of Wapapong. We were able to create a monastery here and bear many hardships over the years because people had appreciation for the truth and were not afraid. This is not just talk. Many of us had malaria for three years, and there was no way to get treatment. We often had no candles, flashlight batteries, or oil for lamps. There were even more snakes and other poisonous creatures than there are now. So when we walked at night, we recited verses of loving kindness and protection. If we died, we died. If we lived, we lived. We could have this attitude because we were following a virtuous way, and we could trust our own minds. So the Buddha taught to look into yourself, know yourself, and train yourself. Do not be too eager to train others. You should be looking at yourself. If others say we are good, that's not our standard to measure by. If others say we aren't good, that is not to be taken as a standard either. Don't be too happy or depressed by what others say. Turn inward and seek out the truth of the matter within yourself. When they are saying we are not good, where is it that we aren't good? Is there such a deficiency? If there's something amiss, correct that. Give up what is wrong. Don't get upset with others for speaking. If what they say isn't true, never mind. They are just seeing things incorrectly. And you can have confidence in what you are doing. You should trust yourself, not reacting to praise or criticism with enchantment or unhappiness. Whether others' speech is right or wrong, never mind. If it's right, 
What is there to be upset and argue about? If it is wrong, why should you want to contend with them? In this way, there is no loss or wrong for yourself. The mind remains happy and satisfied within the practice. So it is said, Morality is the vehicle for happiness. Morality is wealth and treasure. Morality leads to dispassion. Thus may your morality be pure. We should think about this and realize that the five precepts are the moral standard of a genuine human being. All of you who are lay people within the Buddhist fold, have you ever really vowed to maintain these five precepts purely? Have any of you made that determination? Think about it. This is something good and true. But there are probably those who will respond. I can't do it. The world insists that I behave contrary to the precepts. Society forces me to act in certain ways that violate the precepts, and I have to go along with society's ways. From what I have seen, among all the groups of people I encountered, if people have happy lives, they will not be very interested in these things. It's usually only the old and infirm with whom I can really communicate. They're the old-fashioned ones who come here and want to take precepts. Modern-minded people don't see anything of value here. They don't feel it necessary to have any standards or principles to go by. Thus, in our society, we have increased trouble, conflict, and distress. It's like a burning charcoal. We somehow get the idea that it isn't hot. If we pick it up, however, will it be hot or cool? There's some wrong understanding here. Of course, it is really hot. So the populace today is very hot and troubled. Take a look around you. Look at Ajans and their disciples. Look at parents and children. Look at our leaders and the people. There is not much harmony. Why is this? No one can figure it out. It is just because we lack morality. There is no honesty or integrity. And when everyone becomes like this, there can be only heat and torment. This heat is hellfire. Living in a hellish environment, people do all sorts of wrong actions and become hell-realm beings. It's called going to hell while still alive. Honesty and integrity are being lost. We could say they are about half gone. So we can see there is a lot of turmoil and strife in many places. The reason for this is only that morality and dhamma are lost to people, and the pursuit of pleasure and excitement has taken their place. Virtue is constantly declining these days, and the only result is the increase of misery and trouble. Unhappy conditions appear, and we can't figure out any solution. What can we do? What's going on? It happens like this. Morality and dhamma are true and correct. There is nothing incorrect in them. A poor person can practice. A rich person can practice. Any type of person can practice the path of good. This good is like the backbone of for all humans. A life that is established on a foundation of goodness will shine brilliantly and supremely. We needn't worry that any good we do will be wasted. Even after we die, the virtue we have created will remain in the world. This is something we can observe. Virtue does not die. Our children can carry it on. And when others meet our children or see anything that was connected with us, they will think about us and feel happy. 
In this way, we are still giving refuge and assistance to others in the world. The Brahma Viharas are divine abidings of loving kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity should be the foundation of our awareness. We should have love and compassion equally toward all people we meet. We can't just think, this one is not a friend or a relative, so therefore we don't need to have any concern for her. Actually, we are all friends and relatives in birth. There are no other people. Even though we are from different townships or provinces, we are like grains of rice. They grow from one plant or in one field, and as they grow and increase, they are spread around and planted in other places. One grain makes a plant. One plant makes many grains that seed new plants. But it is still rice from the same plant, spreading the species far and wide. We people are the same. From a common ancestry, we end up following our predilections and spreading out in the four directions. When we have scattered far enough, we start to forget ourselves. So we encounter different people and think, this is no relation of mine. When we travel to another village, we think, this is not my home village. The truth is that we are relatives in birth, aging, illness, and death. So our Supreme Teacher instructed us to turn our minds to Dhamma and establish Dhamma as the foundation of our lives. This means helping each other without exception. Whoever is suffering, whoever is in difficulty, we should try to help as well as we can. Please think about this and try to have this attitude. Living in this world together, we should think of each other as parents, relatives, and children. But it's as if we've been separated for many years, so we forget who we are, and we begin to fight and cause all sorts of strife with each other becoming like animals just because of this forgetfulness. Forgetting becomes the cause of fighting, struggling, and even killing each other. Yet, we really are one people. We are all relatives, brothers and sisters. Let's try to be people with Dhamma in our hearts, meaning metta, or loving-kindness. When you meet a female elder, you should have the attitude that this is your mother. When you meet a male elder, you should think, this is my father. If someone is older than you, think of them, of him or her, as your older sibling. Like this, everyone is your sibling, your child, your parents. Please make an effort to have this kind of attitude and give equal help to all those in difficulty. Metta is love. There are two types of love. In one, we love selectively as suits our own purposes. The other is all-inclusive love. In the first way, we love ourselves and those close to us. We won't care about anyone outside of our own family. We just won't have any interest. Caring about our own is good, but it's too limited. It's narrow-minded thinking. It is love also, but it isn't the love of Brahma-vihara. The Buddha wanted us to have measureless, all-inclusive metta. No matter where anyone comes from, we should have the same caring attitude. Whether someone is close to us or distant, we have the same love toward them. In this way, our tranquil mind is said to be all-inclusive, a boundless dhamma. This should become our natural habit. 
We people, whatever our station in life, have been born together into this world. So when someone else is suffering, it is impossible for us to enjoy happiness by ourselves. For example, if someone is going hungry, we won't hoard all the food for ourselves. We are different from animals. If you throw a big lump of rice to some dogs, they won't think about sharing it. They will just run at it and bite each other over it because they are hungry and that's all they know. The stronger ones bite the weaker ones and the losers limp away yelping. If you want each one to get a share, you have to break it up into smaller balls and scatter them around. Then when each dog is eating its own little territory, they might not fight. People have these tendencies too. Why is it that society is deteriorating today? Because metta is not all-inclusive. I've seen the elders in a village where the kids are troublemakers. The youngsters go around robbing houses in the neighboring villages, and eventually they end up stealing in their own village. So the old folks round them up and try to teach them. Hey, you guys, don't go stealing in our village or our township. If you're going to steal, do it somewhere far away. The other towns and villages are okay to rob, just don't do it here. This is how they teach the kids. Well, elders are pretty important. We look up to them for their wisdom. But they say things like this. Actually, they are being thoroughly selfish. If the elders in the other villages are telling their youngsters the same thing and sending them to rob this first village, how will things turn out? This is our home. Don't do that here. We think of older folks as having wisdom, but this is dark wisdom. It doesn't have anything to do with Dhamma. There is a narrow metta for only a few, but people tend to be this way. If we don't have Dhamma in our lives, we are no different from animals, maybe like chickens. What does a chicken do besides eat, sleep, and breed? When someone is raising a chicken, he keeps on feeding it, but for only one purpose. The chicken has no idea. It's just happy to be fed. The owner keeps feeding it and picking it up to weigh it every day. Is it two kilos yet? Is it three kilos yet? The chicken gets to feel that its owner loves it, always picking it up like that. Finally, market day arrives. Still, the chicken doesn't have a clue. It's easy to catch because it's used to being picked up. The owner puts it in the back of the truck. Hey, what fun to ride in a truck. Never done that before. Even when it's sold and its head is on the chopping block, the butcher stretching out its neck to make a clean cut, the chicken is enjoying the pleasant sensation of a massage. If we don't have dhamma, but live by envy and ill will, society will have no peace or happiness. Children born into such an environment will be hard to teach. Communication within a family will be difficult and strained. This is only because there is no dhamma. But foolish people ask, can you eat dhamma? You go to the monasteries, but what do you get from that? What do you bring back? Where is the dhamma you got? Is it anything you can feed your family with? Actually, when we don't eat dhamma, we are just asking for trouble. Whoever does eat dhamma, only for the purpose of having dhamma, lives according to dhamma, will naturally be a person of integrity and will enjoy happiness. That way is correct. There is no misery or turmoil in the aftermath. 
This is called eating Dhamma. If we don't eat Dhamma, there is no peace in society, only conflict and struggle. Wherever you go, you should not be proud or stuck in your ways. In some places, you may not be familiar with the dialect or customs. Don't put on airs and be pretentious. Not knowing others' ways and holding on to your inflated self-esteem will not work out very well. I'll relate something about Ajahn Man. He was practicing meditation in the mountains in Pakto, among the hill tribe people. One day after his sitting, a villager came and asked him, Where did you come from, kid? He answered, I came from Ubon. So, Junior, have you eaten yet? Yes, sir, I ate already. The villager spoke in this informal way, with forms of address used when speaking to an inferior, something which we usually think of as impolite, especially so when talking to an ordained person. But those villagers considered it the best way to speak. If we weren't aware of their custom, it would make us angry. If the villager asked us, Where have you come from, kid? We would feel insulted and wouldn't want to answer. Our throats would get all stiff. But this was not the way of Ajahn Man. He understood the minds of people. But we don't understand people like this. When others use forms of address for a superior in talking to an inferior, it doesn't go down well. In their circle, they consider this the best way to speak. But for us, not understanding the custom, we would probably only get angry. I'll leave it there for today. Any questions, comments? I remember going to the north on Tudong, and uh, they kept referring to me as Du, and I thought, why du. are they calling me a cabinet? Like, uh, <laughs> that, that means pra. Right, right. Du chao. <laughs> yeah, I think Ajahn Chah's, you know, one of his great skills was being able to communicate with all different sorts of people. So whether it was the villagers or lay people in towns or the monastics or whether they were scholars and philosophers, um, he could communicate at all these different levels. And in this case, it's just... And, and also recognizing how integrated the different aspects of the Buddha's teaching is, the Dhamma really is. So that, that I think that, you know, because sometimes for ourselves we can get so focused on meditation that we forget to sort of integrate uh, the, uh, those, those aspects of, of, of uh, say, like virtue and integrity. And and it's not that we're we're sort of uh, uh, you know kind of off the rails or something in our actions, but also just by recognizing it and understanding it, uh, there's a there's a brightness uh, that the mind experiences, and and that's a that's a way of facilitating uh, that that growth in in dhamma and penetration of dhamma.